Peace, everybody, and welcome to another episode of A Long Way from the Block. I'm your host, Anthony Thomas. My next guest is a journalist from Chicago. He's also the host of the incredible podcast called You Didn't See Nothing, available now on all streaming platforms. The podcast is part investigation and part memoir. The series follows him as he revisits the story that introduced him to the world of investigative journalism. It's the story of Leonard Clark, which you will hear about in our interview, and much more about Leonard Clark in detail in his podcast. Not only is he a talented journalist, he's also a playwright and a maker of luxury leather goods, including bags and shoes. Please welcome the very talented Johans LaCour. All right, brother, Johans LaCour, appreciate you for taking this time to come on my podcast, man. Uh, like I said, man, I listened to your entire uh, episodes of your uh, podcast, man. I just couldn't stop listening. It got me through uh, a long cross-country drive. So I really appreciate what you bring to the table and what you're doing for the culture, man. So thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Hey, man, appreciate you for listening, man. And I appreciate you for having me, bro. Yeah, you know, one thing before we dive into it, uh, I wanted to bring up is as I'm listening to you talk and your style and your mannerisms and you going into some of the places you went into to do interviews, it reminded me of uh, my favorite mystery writer, Walter Mosley, and one of my favorite characters, Easy Rollins, and him being sort of like a, a ghetto private investigator and him being able to go into places that nobody else could go in. So when I when I heard you knocking on doors and kind of using your street smarts and skill set, I was like, man, that's an easy Rollins brother right there, man. <laughs> hey, man, that's a high honor, man. Thank you. Walter Mosley is by far one of my favorite black authors. Yeah. Uh, it, absolutely, man. And the Easy Rollins series, man, I, I've been a fan. My father put me on the Walter Mosley and the Easy Rollins books when I was young. Yeah, and uh, and I caught up with a lot more of them while I was locked up, man. Yeah, he uh he started writing for Snowfall. I got even extra yep. excited about that series, man. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. That's 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 huge, man. Thank you, man. I I I, I felt a lot of times I was reminded of Easy Rawlings as I've been doing investigative work since I've been home, man. And uh, yeah, thank you, thank you, man. That's big. Yeah, I don't have the quotes, but there was a few times that I, man, I swear you were channeling Easy Rollins, man, and just the way that you would approach a question or after you would leave an interview, because that's what he would do. He would go into places and he would leave and then he'd have these thoughts and ideas about what just happened. And I felt you were doing some of that stuff. And it was just really, it was just cool for me because, you know, I've I've had a chance to meet him several times. You know, he's from L.A. I'm from San Diego. So I've seen him at many book signings and, and things and, and got to talk with him a little bit. So I just wanted to share that with you. Hey man, that's a, that's uh, I would fucking love to meet Walter <laughs> Mosley, man. That's, that's, thank you, man. Yesterday, man, I got a call. From a buddy of mine, man, we grew up together, known each other forever, man. We're bright dude, but also, like, you know, seeing some things in, on the south side of Chicago coming up. 
And he had listened to an interview I did on uh, Snap Judgment on NPR. Mm-hmm. He came like that, and he called me, man. And he and he told me I can't quote him word for word, but basically he, he told me that that my description of of life in America for a black man resonated with him in a way that was the most powerful description of black life in America for black men that he'd ever heard since he said James Baldwin. And that just, I almost had to just pull over to process that because it was just a huge and high honor to be regarded and thought of and, and to think that my words and my messages and my sentiments was resonating with somebody like that. And the next morning for you to sit here and, and tell me you felt easy rolling Walter Mosley vibes. I'm, you know, I, uh, I'm, I, I, I could just say God is good, man. I'm, I'm, I'm full of thanks right now, man. Thank you, man. That's, that's huge. Well, I just think your experience is kind of rare in the particular art form that you're a part of. You know, we know many people that have gone through the things that you've gone through, being in the dope game, spending time in the joint, and have come out and become great chefs, uh, businessmen, obviously, you know, hip-hop artists and producers. But I think what you're doing, you don't see too much of that that dives into what you're into. And I just think it's very interesting because you're able to move around in so many different worlds and even your language and your choice of words are very interesting. Even when you're talking about very serious matters, like I love the fact that you say, you know, I'm about to go over my partner's house or I got to go talk with the big homie. And you explain, you know, what that means, (laughs) you know, so I'm just laughing when I'm hearing you, you use these, you know, use this vernacular in such a serious setting as journalism. And I like it. I like it because you you you're you know so-called keeping it real, but you all you're also a very serious intellectual. You're very well read, which we'll talk about. And you talk about how you read Richard Wright as a young boy and how your mom gave you these books and and you know, kind of had this high standard for you. So I just think it's rare that you're doing what you're doing and having the background that you have. We just don't see that 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 often in the podcast world. Yeah, you know, when I was locked up, man, um, one, thank you, man. Um, when I was locked up, I, you know, it was I, it was at one point, and then after that, several, it happened several times later, when I was just struck by how much talent and intelligence and creativity and beautiful energy, how many, you know, just great minds were behind those walls with me. Um, matter of fact, when I interviewed Dr. Lisa, who was uh, Lenard's uh, doctor through rehab, mm-hmm. she um, shared a story with me. Her, her, I believe her stepson had been in prison for some time. So she could relate because her stepson was like an amazing young man who also came home to do some some really, you know, spectacular things and, and, and just reestablish himself. Um, and she talked about how you know, we, I told her just that, like, there's just so much talent. Just when I think about the black man power and black man hours that have been stolen and trapped and isolated and just put on ice. Um, 
she talked about uh, the same thing and thinking the same things when she would visit her stepson, how, you know, the cure for cancer, she said, could very well, right. you know, be in the minds of those men stuck behind these prison walls. Yep. Um, and yes, it's a lot of our ingenuity, man. A lot of our, you know, I talk, and I, you know, not to go off subject, man, but I talk to a lot of women, you know, right now, for whatever reason, I've come home to find a lot of conflict um, between black men and women around love and romance and marriage and relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, it's just a, a lot of um, our protectors and providers, our soldiers, our warriors, our thinkers, our planners, our strategists are in prison. Um, and a lot of them for drug-related crimes, many of which drugs are not legal and being, you know, legally regulated and distributed like marijuana. Um, and then men for, you know, drug crimes that ain't necessarily drug-related, but just are rooted in the survival mode that, that you know, poverty and black life put so many brothers in, man. So, yep. you know, I'm I'm proud to be is some symbol of the potential of 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 the men that have been just kind of thrown away and kind of re-enslaved in America. And so um yeah, I I, I, I in large part I, I I try to do what I do in, in honor of, of all of the countless brothers and sisters who've been uh incarcerated, um given disproportionate amounts of time. And just kind of, you know, just kind of all around fucked over by America and 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 um and rendered, you know, um had they had our hands tied, you know. So yeah, thanks for saying it, thanks for seeing it. That's that's definitely what 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 the aim is. Yeah, and I could just relate to a lot of the stuff because I think, you know, we come from different neighborhoods, but I think the mindset of the cats we grew up with is pretty much the same or very, very similar. You know, a lot of folks I grew up with uh, did a lot, a lot of time with the three strikes and with the, um, uh, what they call it, the, uh, uh, the minimum, uh, the maximum minimum sentences that they, uh, mandatory mandatory minimums. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people did a lot of time. So I stayed in contact with a lot of them through the time. And, you know, I still in contact with them when we talk all the time. So I just I really appreciated your your frustration with all of that, but also your passion for making a difference and exposing it, you know, because I think that's a good combination. You know, like you it comes off how pissed off you are about this. But I think your father might have said. You could do something that's going to put you back in the same situation or you could do something else which you decided to do to make another kind of difference so i kind of got that mind state you know what i mean like when y'all was about to go put in work and it didn't work out and y'all could have reassessed and made it work out but then that would have come with some heavy consequences right so i like that you used your your journalistic skills uh and whatnot but but anyway so i do want to dive into a little bit of your upbringing and where you come from and some of the early influences. I know your father and and mother sounds like were a big influence on you, but you know, you could talk about that, but who else kind of 
was a was a was a mentor or kind of a guide that kind of changed the way you saw the world at an early age? Yeah, I'd have to say my uncle, man, um, who I who I didn't uh I don't I don't think I ever mentioned by name in the podcast, but I discussed him a lot with with my team when we were preparing and they were asking me the same questions. We were kind of just, you know, gearing up to write. Um, my uncle's name is C. Vernon Mason. He uh he was a civil rights attorney and activist in Harlem. Uh, and so this is my mother's brother. So while all of my, my homies were, and, and classmates were going to like Arkansas and Mississippi and Alabama um, every summer and Christmas to visit family for so much of black Chicago, you know, is, 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 is from um, that part of the South. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to Harlem for Christmases and summers to visit my mother's brother and his family. And uh, and he was just an intense, intelligent, amazing, revolutionary attorney. He was he was so sharp. He was so witty. He was so committed. He was so unapologetically black and 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 and, and fighting for black folks. And he, he had a beautiful brownstone in Harlem. Mm-hmm. Wow, and, but but his heart was with the people, um, with black folks at the bottom. And that's what he fought for, um, and so and it seemed like every summer or Christmas I was there, like without fail. So this is through like the eighties mostly, mm-hmm. yeah, right. Um, and it seemed like every summer and Christmas I was there, it was the 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 the, the case of the year would fall down. I remember getting there one one Christmas vacation, I believe, and one of the brothers who survived the Howard Beach attack yep. was in his office, in his home office, when my mother and, and I arrived from the airport one night, and he's sitting there, eye hanging out of his face. And these were the type of things that had become routine for me to see. I remember meeting Tawana Brawley, Really? Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. He he worked on that case. He worked on the Howard Beach case. I believe he might have worked on the Eleanor Bumpers. He worked with uh, uh, Alton Maddox, and um, unfortunately, he, he worked with you know he worked with Al Sharpton, who yep. turned out to be um, problematic in different ways down the line. <laughs> you know, um, I but didn't know. yeah, yeah. But he he <laughs> these were the cases he was working on. My my uncle ran for district attorney. Um, against, I think, Robert Morgenthau was his name. Um, and Monkle didn't win, but I worked on his campaign every day with him for the summer I was there. And so these experiences of watching my uncle fight for Black folks, fight for Black folks who've been assaulted and, and, and maimed and, and, and who've lost family members at the hands of white folks, citizens, and police, that's that's really for me where where it started where where the, where the desire to activate and respond and 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 think in a revolutionary mind frame and study panthers and and you know um study you know black liberation and the quest mm-hmm. for it. that's where it began for me my uncle was was probably the most pivotal person in my life, actually, when it comes to that. You know, my, my father, my mother, you know, um, 
both of their fathers was in was civil rights attorneys um, who made huge strides for black folks. So they come up in that tradition. But it was my uncle who I saw putting in that kind of work as his life's work and supporting his family and working with the community um, and just, you know, being there for the underdog and standing up to these people um, against all lives. I remember when the Central Park Five went down. I was in Harlem when that case happened. I was in Harlem when news hit across headlines, you know, and, and I remember my uncle arguing about well, there was an injustice going on. And I remember not understanding how not being a, I remember just the respect I had for him made me know if he sees something, there's something there I'm not seeing, but I'm looking at the newspapers and all of the sources I trust tell us that they confessed and they presented these images and these stories and these, these narratives and these witness statements and everything felt like Unc had to have had it wrong. And is he overstepping? Is he, and then, you know, what, 30 years later, 40 years later, you know, you discover that, you know, Unc was, was, was on point. And, you know, it's just, yeah, my, my uncle C. Vernon Mason from, from out of, out of Harlem, New York, and those experiences were probably my biggest influence um, when it comes to how I see the world right. um, around race. Yeah. Yeah. So they planted these seeds at an early age, which obviously has come to fruition from what you're doing now. And Black excellence was something that you saw at an early age through literature, art, uh, history and all these things. Did you embrace that early on, or were you kind of like one of those kids? Were like, yeah, yeah, I hear that, but like, I just want to go play tackle football at the park, and I want to hang out and do this and do that. Oh no, both. I embraced it. Um, my mother, you know, um, so my, my my father and I didn't have uh, the best relationship when I in my very my, my younger years. Yeah, my mother and father divorced when I was like in preschool. Okay, right? and so and so, um, as I was in my mother's care, like all through grammar school, all through eighth grade, I I, I kind of reconnected and 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 wound up living with my father when I started high school at like okay. 13, 14 years old. So prior to that, I was pretty much all my mother. And I would see my father maybe a couple times a year. We talk here and there, or it might be a year here or there where we, we we were closer. But you know, he was moving around a lot, going through things, um, and and so. And so, so I can remember, I remember vividly when, you know, I would want to go outside and I would want to go play football. I would want to go do my thing. My mother, we're in Chicago. My mother's from, from Marion, Arkansas. You know what I mean? And so I'm a first generation Chicagoan by way of parents who are straight from Marion, Arkansas and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Okay. So they come to the big city and, you know, they, 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 you know, they, they spooked by the big city stories. It's, it's, it's my understanding. And so my mom now alone um, is like a lot of like a lot of single black mothers who are also themselves new to the big city and the big cities. You know, you try to protect her boy. And so, and, you know, and so she. Um, you know, I, I, it, it was hard for me to get outside and go play football and do my thing. And we had we bumped heads a lot over the amount of freedom I did and didn't have. So I was I was both embracing of 
uh, of, of this literature and this art and these and, and everything I was learning, as well as trying to get outside and you know go hang with the homies and yep, you yep. know go find my way as a as a as a boy growing into a young man. Um, but I, I can remember my mother. I can remember wanting to go outside or watch TV, and my mom wasn't. You know, we had it was hours I could watch TV. I couldn't just watch TV. Just because I just because homework was done didn't mean it was I could just watch TV for the rest of the time I right. played. I had to do study at home as well. So my mother was a teacher. So her thing was like, yeah, you getting what you getting at school, but you you gonna get something here too. And so <laughs> um yeah, so she was I can I'll never forget her telling me she had a huge like bookcases, you know, lined with with with, with, with beautiful books and, and and I remember her telling me go go read a book and. And she, she didn't have, I don't remember having children's books. I'm sure I did when I was a baby, when I was really young. My father yeah. taught me how to read at like three or something, you know, it's crazy. So by the time I'm seven, eight, nine, you know, it's nothing but novels around. And I just, I picked out Native Son. So that was the first novel I read. I wasn't even 10 yet. And that story and that book transported me to that world of Bigger Thomas. Um, that Richard Wright had put together. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was, I think that was one of those moments that forever changed me. I think it was one of those moments where something happened to me internally that, that, that would set a path for me. Um, and I'm, I'm really thankful for it too. Um, so no, I embraced it. I embraced the hell out of it okay. and still wanted to hit the streets and, right. And, and and see the <laughs> girls and figure yeah. out, you know, learn from the older cats in the hood how to move. You know, I wanted yep. it all. I hear you. Yeah, definitely. Well, I wanted to ask you this question because I was, you know, listening to the podcast. I've actually been listening to it even more leading up to this conversation. And but I want to be clear, it, it's not a, a judgment question in any way, shape or form. So. But I do want to ask, because it's something that I find very interesting growing up in the communities that we grow up in, is that you at an early age knew what Black excellence was. Uh, A lot of us didn't get that at an early age. You know, we had to wait way, way later to find out about books like that, literature and history. And it seems like you kind of had a, you know, what they call knowledge of self at an early age. And you knew about the Panthers, you knew about Malcolm X, you knew about all of these different things that was embedded into you from both your parents and like extended family. So I'm wondering, how do you think having all of that information and still dabbling or diving into the dope game, like how do you look at that for you personally? Yeah, so it was a one. It was a gradual thing. It was a transition. It was something that happened over time, and it was. It, I would attribute a, it to a few things that that kind of interesting kind of dichotomy, right? Um, one, yeah, I saw black excellence mostly through um, the examples of 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 my parents' generation. I, I didn't, I didn't, what I didn't see was what I could be doing in the moment um, to, to carry that tradition. 
I, but I, I didn't see opportunity for me to activate and um and and this and 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 and, and bring action to my revolutionary thoughts and and, and passions as a youngster. Um, the, the, the what I saw as the most is the is the most revolutionary act was to extend myself and, and expand my my network and my community to my peers who hadn't been exposed to black excellence in the same way. Right. I was and I'm a youngster. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm battling this thing where I'm seeing this black excellence and what I want to go into. But I. I don't see where the stepping stone is for me to get there. Mm. What I do see is a world that I'm still a, a boy and I still want and I'm still looking for acceptance and validation and, and for myself. I'm still trying to find myself and who am I growing into as I know I want I know I'm I want to be a revolutionary. I knew that. And what form that was going to take, I didn't know. Um and so when I'm seeing when I'm seeing dudes from 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 different hoods who who had it tough where they were from and in their environments or maybe tougher times in their homes um and in their lives and, and I see that 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 side of blackness I'm I, I was drawn to it and I want to stand in solidarity with with the more oppressed of my peers right and I'll never forget me and my my best friend may he rest in peace man he passed um, at the top of, of uh, a 22 of last year, man. And and we were, you know, it's like a twin, man. Um, mm. And I remember we made a decision. I remember having conversations, thinking about, so, you know, coming from Hyde Park, and we knew, like, kids who were in Jack and Jill and these kind of black elite programs and played tennis and golf and, and whatnot. Um, now I was going to school with these kids, living close to some of these kids, but my mother being a school teacher and my father being in and out of the picture, Jack and Jill and these tennis programs, it, it wasn't even a possibility for me, but I still knew these kids and kept conversations with them and could be, be embraced by their families and everything still because of, of the nature of who I was and what I was coming from still nonetheless. And I'm close enough. Right. So we were like socially integrated in that way. Um, and then and then there was another class of, of, of youngsters that, 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 you know, that I'm close to who are from further south and from, you know, from Princeton Park and from, you know, the hundreds and, and you know, in, in, in the west side who um, who came from poverty. Um, or were closer to it, who mm -hmm. came from neighborhoods where gang banging was way thicker, you know, and way more intense. Um, and those were, the, and I was, and it was like, you know, we could we could hang out with tennis players and everything, but a lot of them I know just kind of looked down <laughs> on the dudes from 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 these from these neighborhoods, right, from outside mm -hmm. of High Park and yeah. and or even the other side of High Park, right. Um, and I grew to understand that that them looking down on them was really their fear of them. Um, right. And, right. And because I was a student of, of of activism and black liberation, I was determined not to be scared of no nigga, but no none of my people. I wasn't gonna be scared of black people. 
Um, and I wasn't gonna be scared to go where they are. And I felt like I felt like I was more attracted to the to the to the to the to the struggle than I was that kind of you know um, position that kind of the self aggrandizing that self centered yep. kind of thing. Yep. Um, and I felt like I could be some sort of soldier there, like I could be a leader there and kind of and I could and I could you know as well as follow leads and learn more. Right. But um, I felt like I felt like that was a, the, 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 the closest opportunity to do what I saw my uncle doing. I saw my uncle mm. leave from I would get on the, 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 the subway with my uncle from Harlem and his brownstone. Now, my, I mean, he had a beautiful brownstone, but it was on a wild block in Harlem. Harlem was wild in the 80s. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was wild. Mm. And so but when we would leave his brownstone in Harlem on 125th. Uh, I'm sorry, 145th is between Broadway and Riverside Drive. And we would we would we would go up that hill, hit that McDonald's, hit the subway, and travel to the Bronx, which was like some apocalyptic looking shit. Yeah. And we would and he would work with black men, women, and children who were clearly from the bottom of the bottom. And so for me, coming from this kind of middle class environment in Hyde Park, you know what I mean, um, with 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 with, with the experience I had. The closest thing I could do to that was to immerse myself with the people I was drawn to um, who were from the bottom and were closer to the bottom mm. and, 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 and bring whatever it is, whatever skills I had, whatever knowledge I had, whatever understanding I had of the world to them um, and, and, and move forward with them as opposed to joining a class of kids who came from a class of folks who had, who had more kind of jump down with the system um and, and I didn't see any any um any of them fighting for the folks at the bottom um so there's that then yeah. I, I watched I watched my my mother and and my father when I you know when I did see him I watched them struggle they college educated my father has graduate degrees studied linguistics at University of Chicago and I still watched them struggle mm-hmm. you know as a black man kind of moving from place to place trying to figure it out. Um, my own experience with high school and college, a lot of times in, in classrooms feeling like, and some of this was just my own arrogance as a youngster, youthful kind of arrogance, but some, I, I often felt like, man, they, my parents are smarter than these. a lot of these teachers. I've learned more at home already. I started, you know, I'm, I'm acing tests and standardized tests and, 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 and classroom tests without even going to class. Um, and I'm feeling, so I've lost a little bit of a respect for, for, for formal education at this point, given that I don't feel but so challenged, especially once I hit high school. Right. Right. I didn't feel but so challenged by my, by, by the teachers in the curriculum. Even when I went to college, I only felt so challenged. Um, and, and, and having seen it, uh, I didn't want to, I, I didn't like the idea of working Nine to fives, like my parents did. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of all that, my my uncle wound up being disbarred behind um, his approach to handling the Tawana Brawley case. Okay. Which, and I I never, and to this day, I still don't. It's another conversation. I don't believe she she made up um, mm-hmm. everything that that the the state wound up accusing her of doing. Yep. I think that, uh, and, and so my uncle was disbarred. If I remember correctly, he was, I was young, 
but my uncle did not allow or force Tawana Brawley to take the stand. And her not taking the stand somehow created uh, the context for the state to say, well, she ain't taking the stand. We're going to assume she made us all up. Right. And, and just like my uncle never let go of the Central Park Five's innocence, I've never let go of Tawana Brawley's original story. Something happened to that girl. Something vicious happened to that girl. At whose hands, I don't know. Right. And I don't know who knows. But I, I, I know, I, be, I believe in my heart that she didn't make that up. And so watching him get disbarred uh, after all I seen him do felt, um, felt uh, uh, organized. Um, it felt conspiratorial. It felt like there was a, a, a plot to, you know, I had seen, again, I'm reading Malcolm Martin. I'm, I'm you know, Mega Evers. I'm reading about all these people who'd been murdered after the Panthers. You know, you see black folks do that level of the work mm-hmm. and get and get struck down. Um, so yeah, all of that kind of started. I had less and less faith in the system. Yeah. Um, I had less and less faith in black excellence being the route to which I achieved a level of success that's that's that's, that's really fulfilling. And so at that point, it's like, man, I'm 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 in these streets, man, with the people in the streets, and I'm gonna figure it out from there. Um, and it was also gradual in that it wasn't like one day I looked up and I'm going to sell dope. Right. It was more like um, I smoke weed. Anyway, I've I, I discovered weed, smoking joints with the homies. And then we discovered where to buy weed. <laughs> and you buy, we buy weed from the projects. Yep. A lot of guys in my neighborhood um, were either scared or just scared of the unknown or whatever, weren't trying to ride to the projects to buy weed. So it got to the point where some of the homies from the neighborhood would be like, man, you you know, I would go, I would go get every, I would go get all the bags. I would ride with somebody. People would give me their money. I'd ride to the projects, buy the bags of weed, bring them back for a couple of the guys here and there. That number would grow. After a while, me just, you know, just a business, a, a, just a pure business sense kicked in. Like, wait a minute, this is, a thing. They're giving me money to go get a thing. I can go get that thing. Yeah. I, and, and at this point, I built a, a slight rapport with the guys in the lobby where other products I'm going to buy weed from. And so now, you know, I, I and so after a while, um, you know, I, I see how, okay, I can do this and smoke for free. After a while, it grows and I'm not looking to make a business out of this, but it, it becomes one. Yeah. And just like they say, weed is a gateway drug for for users, a gateway drug into harsher things. It's also a gateway product for hustlers, right? You once you're in the weed game, you are now in the building of the underworld where the cocaine dealers and the heroin dealers and everybody else, users and the like, are also roaming this building. And I'm I explore, I move around. And so it just kind of was a natural kind of thing. Um, so it, it was over time and it, it was a lot of factors. Um, it wasn't, you know, an overnight type, just quick decision. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I was finally in prison for selling heroin, yep. which was a, one of the drugs that in my younger years, I had actually said I would never sell. Um, and so I kind of compromised my own uh, personal rule and, and value when I did. But uh, 
but yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't just, it wasn't, it wasn't so cut and dry. It was just a lot of factors. Yeah. Yeah. And I figured it, it wasn't, and that was, uh, very well put. And, and for, you know, the audience, it's very well documented in the podcast and you paint that picture so vividly of the day you got approached and the day you got arrested and being with your daughter. And it just, the way you painted that picture, man, just kind of brought me back to my neighborhood and my community and how those things happen with various people I grew up with when all the indictments went out and, you know, my neighborhood was like a ghost town the next day. So I really appreciated how you talked about it. Um, and like I said, people will hear all of that when they listen to the podcast. But what I wanted to ask you about without going into all of that, because people can hear it, is, <clears throat> you know, 10 years is a long time. I mean, that's a, that's a serious bid they gave you. And how was that for you with having parents and having that revolutionary spirit and being a highly, highly intelligent person and an artist and having to go through a system like that that is just on a whole nother level. So I'm just wondering, how was that navigating that world, knowing what you have, you know, in your head, in your intelligence level? Not that people in there still don't have that intelligence level. But I just mean for you personally. Yeah, I had a different experience um, than than a lot of the brothers there, and and I, and I knew it going in, and it, it was always evident throughout my time there. Um, it was a lot of intelligence, natural intelligence. There wasn't a lot of formal education. There wasn't a lot of uh, you know basic foundational knowledge to to um, support um, and, and 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 enhance that natural intelligence. Um, and so it was it was a challenge um for a lot of reasons. Um it, it was it was hard, it was heartbreaking to to have broken uh, my mother's heart mm. um and my uncle's heart and my and my and, and to have hurt my father, you know, and to watch and to watch them um actually kind of do that 10 years without me. Um I hurt I hurt more for them and my daughter than I did myself. Um I uh and it, and it was also just real enlightening to get that close to, you know, all of the experiences of the brothers I did time with, um, and, you know, and see, you know, um, you know, I ran into cats I knew, I ran into cats who knew dudes I knew, um, but it, it was challenging, um, because it, it, it was, uh, I, I felt like I had really, um, let, my people down, um, my my family, you know, my parents, my uncle, my kid, um, as as well as our people, man. I'm like, you know, I'm I I had wanted to spend my life um kind of devoted to the struggle. And I realized that not only had I been sidetracked, I put myself in a position where I was just not gonna be able to do it at all. I did though, because I knew I had an outdate, even though 10 years is a long time, I did know. I was always confident that since I would be back, that I would uh, I would use you know everything that I had learned and experienced prior to prison, um, and as well as everything I learned and experienced in prison to to do the things that um that I wasn't able to do while in prison, which was become active, which was to tell the stories, 
which was to mobilize and organize and and teach and and, and inspire and, and try to push for for liberation and and to figure out what that looks like. Um, so there was some there was a silver line in that I knew I was going to get out because I met so many people mm. who, who who either wouldn't or wouldn't for a much longer time. Um, but it, it it was tough, man. It was also tough because you know my parents. Um, you know, my, my parents' generation, that kind of deep Southern black kind of um, never let them see you sweat kind of, uh, you know, family business is private and stays in-house. You yeah. know, you, you, got, you got a lot of black families who, who don't talk about the, the, the tough times, who don't talk about the personal tragedies. Mm-hmm. I think they, you know, I think they just don't need another... Uh, soft spot. They don't need another uh, point of vulnerability. Um, I think, you know, and so, you know, for a long time, man, um, I had cousins who didn't even know I was locked up um, because mm-hmm. because some of my family members were just too embarrassed or self-conscious or whatever just to share that. And so I'm locked up with people who regularly go to prison whose fathers and brothers have been in prison for whom prison is kind of almost part of the rite of passage unfortunately mm-hmm. yeah. um and, and here i am and and got family members who don't even know where i am um so it was it was it was challenging and it just but i you know i learned from it all and um and I and I and I and I feel like the experience and everything I learned has better prepared me to to do the work that I'm that I'm embarking on now. Right. Wow. Yeah, man, that's interesting, man. So let's dive into this podcast, man, because I just gotta say, man, this is this is one of the best podcasts I've heard in a long time, man. It's 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 on the level of what uh Sarah Koenig was doing with serial. It kept my interest the whole time, all the way through every single episode. So I want to know, how did it come from you getting out of prison? Obviously, the, the, the incident happened with Leonard Clark. But how did you go all the way to actually putting this thing in motion, like getting in the studio and start recording? How did they have faith and trust in you that you were going to be, you know, uh, a, a real journalist, you know, from from your background and not having a lot of experience in the podcast form? I know you talk a lot about your team and your support and it comes through in the podcast, but I'm just wondering from the beginning to right to production, like, could you just kind of take us through that journey a little bit? Yeah, no doubt, man. It's interesting, man. It's, it's just wild how stories come full circle um, and how the universe works, how God works, right? When I got out, I I, um, I picked up leather work while I was in the joint. Mm-hmm. And so when I got out, the I, I wanted, I, I, and, I, and I had fallen in love with it. So I knew I wanted to pursue leather work and do something with that, with that as a free man. And I'd always been a writer and I knew I wanted to, to write. At some at some level, any and everything I could do, right? And so I'm throwing everything at the wall, 
And so, um, you know, fresh out and there's a neighborhood newspaper called the Hyde Park Herald. And I'm like, well, I'll start there. Um, I'll try to, even if I just got to do, if I could freelance, if I could do a book review, full critic, edit some classified, anything basic, just to get in the door, just to get, put any kind of money in my pocket. And, um, and I'm like, you know, before I decided to just cold call them and see if they were hiring, you know, we lived in, my father lived in Hyde Park, you know, for so long at that point and all the time I've been gone, I asked him, like, do we, do we know anybody at the Hyde Park Herald? Chicago is a, is a, you know, a, a who you know before, so what you know kind of place. So I'm like, do we know anybody there? And we didn't, but my father would run into this guy just walking dogs in the park in the neighborhood and have, have conversations with a white guy named Jamie Calvin, who's a journalist, um, and an amazing one at that, who had also like um blown the lid off of the uh the, the Laquan McDonald story where the young brother was shot 16 times by police and it was covered up that you know he was he didn't have a gun, he was no threat, you know, it was a huge case. And uh and so so you know, just to give you context about who Jamie Calvin is. He put me in tune with him and said, you know, I'll ask him what's up. So he set up a meeting with me and Jamie. And Jamie basically told me, you know, uh, you know what? I, I I don't know what's going on at the Herald. Um, doesn't look like there's anything they're looking for right now. But just come sit down with me and talk to me. You know what I mean? As a favor mm-hmm. to my father, he had a meeting with me to see where I was and what I wanted to do around journalism. Yeah. And he, he his organization is, is real big into uh, human rights violations, as it, mostly as it pertains to black folks. Uh, against uh, uh, and police um, in our experience. So when I sat down with him, you know, my my biggest um, piece of work um, when it comes to journalism had been a Leonard Clark case. Leonard Clark case. I had done some writing and some editing at other places and spots, but that was the the biggest thing I had done around journalism. My deepest investigative journalism. And so when I'm telling him the story. Not only of what happened with Nara Clark, which he remembered himself because he was not only in Chicago, but he was actually located and working in and out of the projects at the time, mm-hmm. which was really interesting for a white guy to be kind of immersed <laughs> in yeah. CA Chicago Housing Authority and the, and the project life, right? Right. Um, so he remembered the case well. He remembered all the players. I told him about all the things that I had discovered that had never made the news. Uh, he was stunned by these discoveries, um, as well as we, we we just we just chopped it up about all of the different players and the people behind the scenes in the case because he knew them well from having been a journalist himself and having studied so much of the landscape. So this thirty minute conversation became a three hour talk. And that excited us both. Um, and so he wound up offering me a fellowship at the Invisible Institute. And the idea was that I would do a long form print journalism piece for print, retelling the story of the Lenar Clark case. Um, as I talked to him more, as I as I worked on it more, um, it, be, it was I found it, it was it was becoming difficult to find everybody I would need to find in order to retell this story all these years later. At the same time, the Invisible Institute was um, had just finished a podcast called Somebody, 
which went on to be nominated for a Pulitzer, won a bunch of awards, amazing podcast. Um, and they found so much success with it. It was their first podcast. And so after having, you know, developed an audio journalism team in order to make that podcast um, and still kind of struggling to figure out how to tell this story, it was actually his idea to, to take a shot at telling the story through an audio podcast. I had never even heard an audio <laughs> podcast before. Wow. You know, I got home and the podcast was a new thing to me. And everybody I knew, all you know, all of my guys, all of my homies, you know, um, you know, in the streets, podcast is a is a thing you see on YouTube. A podcast was a visual thing. So an audio podcast that has no video component was just new to me. I didn't know how to I had never written for audio. Um so so that so that's how it happened. We it started there, and then over time we kind of decided, okay, let's tell the story this way. And so then I started working with the audio team at the Invisible Institute, which was basically me spending some sessions with them, just having brain dumps, telling them everything I could remember, everything that stood out, everything that was important, um, all the questions I had uh, about this case and my experience around it. And from that, we then made the decision that my personal story was an important part of the story. Yeah. And so yeah. telling this story through my lens as a as a, a man who returned home after 10 years away from the world, seeing these dynamics still at play, juxtaposing that with my viewpoint as a 23-year-old and how I approached the case then, uh that that was um that 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 was that was that was how how we got there. And and after those brain dumps um and uh uh, getting all uh, uh, transcribing all of those recordings, um, we uh, we started writing and researching and investigating, and um, I just had an amazing team, and and yeah, that that's 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 how it went from uh, me getting home, just still having this story in the back of my mind and on my heart, to us deciding it was going to be an audio podcast. Yeah, yeah. And adding your personal story to me is what makes this podcast so special. And actually, uh, I think that's what would make it award-winning in some way, is you putting in your story. That changes everything with this podcast. So congratulations for, for doing that part. And whoever's idea that was, that made all the difference in this kind of podcast, man, adding your personal story, because it gives so much context to why you want to do this. So what, what I what I would like is if you could just give a very brief description of the Lenard Clark case and why it was so important for you to bring that to us. But I do want it to be brief because I want people to listen to this podcast almost like I did, knowing nothing, just going in with maybe just a tiny bit of information and taking this entire journey, which is hard to do these days with social media and stuff. So I was so excited. I had never heard of this podcast, never heard of you or any of this. So I went in completely blind and it just blew me away. So I, But I do want you to maybe just give a little bit of backstory about this young brother and what happened 
and why you were so passionate about this project. Yeah, so a little boy, Leonard Clark from the project, he's 13 years old, um, first warm day of the spring, and uh, he goes out just to play. Um, he doesn't understand the relationship between his neighborhood and this, this sundown town of a racist neighborhood called Bridgeport across the expressway. And he winds up over there and is beaten into a coma and left for dead by a gang of uh, young Italian men from Bridgeport. Um, me having come up, you know, uh, an avid defender of black folks and, um, you know, when I heard about it, I was, I was, uh, I was moved to do something. Um, and so, uh, that wound, that led me to writing and investigating the story. And once I investigated the story, you know, I, I just, I saw, um, I discovered cover-ups and collusions and conspiracies and, 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 uh, and a lot of actors that play um, between, you know, police, politicians, uh, you know, so-called black leaders and activists. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it was a story that they just told, taught me that much more about how race and power plays out in, in Chicago and in America for that matter. Um, and just how, how, just, just how much of a pawn, um, you know, the black experience it is in, in, in this big chess game. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I come home from prison all these years, um, later and see so many things, uh, that, that look the same going on. I've seen so many black men, women, and children murdered and maimed by, by white folks, uh, citizens and police over the years that that case and what I, what I learned from it just feels just as relevant today. Mm -hmm. um, and so the opportunity to tell the story was for me an opportunity to alert and warn people about how the culprits and the perpetrators and their supporters are moving, you know, behind the scenes so that we can strategize better as to how to effectively combat this kind of shit. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, man. <laughs> Very well put, man. Well, I have I have some serious questions about this podcast, man, that just it kind of drove me crazy, man. I'm like, I, I got to bring these questions to this brother if I could talk to him. But uh yeah, are you how you doing with time? You good? I'm good. I'm good, bro. Okay. All right. Let's 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 just dive right into some of the stuff. But I do want to thank you very much for just bringing the name up, Harold Washington, on your podcast. I think anytime that happens, I think that's a good thing. I think people really need to look at what he did, uh, you know, in Chicago. And I come to know Harold Washington from uh, Steve Coakley, who I I kind of knew. I knew Steve personally. Uh, and I actually did a little bit of research for him in the early 90s. He's come out to San Diego and Los Angeles many times. So I just wanted to uh, just to put that out there. So I'm glad you brought his name up in this podcast. Uh, the brother Ron Carter just learned so much about him. That was absolutely incredible. Your relationship with him and meeting him and and uh, what he brings to the podcast is is very, very special. 
So, uh, yeah, I appreciate you for that, man. Yeah, Steve, so, so Steve Coakley, so, you know, for your listeners, when they hear the podcast, they'll hear um, in episode one, um, as you heard, my my really close friend, one of my best friends, Rasan, we call him Ro, yep. who's now an attorney, who, who, who actually was the person who called me and, and where I first heard about what happened on our Clark, he called me that the next morning and he'd seen the news before me and told me that this had happened. Um, Steve Coakley was his stepfather. Oh, so, man. Wow. Yeah, 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 man. And um, and his brother, Rose's little brother, Steve Coakley Jr., now lives in Ghana, kind of carrying on his father's tradition, doing wow. that work. Yeah, yeah. So... So, like, my best friend is Steve Coakley's stepson. So you can imagine oh, man. what kind of conversations <laughs> we had and how yeah. amazing it was for me coming from civil rights activists and attorneys and Panthers to, to bond with um, a brother, you know, you know, from where I'm from with that kind of experience um, and have, you know, conversations and, and, um, and develop that friendship. Uh, so yeah, I, I've been, you know, a lot of times I, you know, I can't help but feel like um, m- my life is is playing out exactly as it has been meant to, um, because it's just it's just ain't no strange happenings. It, it, it ain't nothing that's coincidental. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, the, yeah. The paths I've crossed. Right. Right. So the one thing that I was trying to get clarity the most for in this podcast is the situation with the family, the parents of the boy that was charged with the crime. He went to court, found guilty. But what I'm trying to understand is why did the family go on an apology tour if they're saying he is 100% innocent? Why would they do that? Uh, I think that they were playing two games at once. They're pleading not guilty, but because they're playing the the legal, official, above board game with courts. Ultimately, they're trying to get their boy out of the joint. So they're they're never going to plead guilty to the courts because they're, they're fighting that at all costs. And, and 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 at the same time, um, they're trying to do damage control and sway the court of public opinion. Black folks are in an uproar. Um, and so their mission is to kind of quell that, ease that tension, get black folks to be a little more quiet or calm down, um, embrace them, embrace this idea of racial reconciliation. Uh, so that it will have that le- in their minds, um, it will have that uh, less impact on the courts that could actually determine whether this boy walks or not. So they're they're playing these two games, and and they don't work. It doesn't logically make sense. How you know? But but at the same time, they they they're using such an abracadabra game. They're using such a you know, and it's really a testament to, unfortunately, just how easily manipulated and how vulnerable black folks are and were then 
that that was even possible. Um, and so it's not like, you know, and no, and, and no one is, is pointing that out. No one is pushing um, that question to them because they surrounded themselves with the, the, the black community members who have the agenda to um, get their constituents behind this narrative of, of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's almost like, and again, I'm, you know, I'm, they never answered this question flat out. So I'm speaking for them. I'm giving you my best assessment. It's almost like they kind of felt like they were apologizing for the history of Bridgeport and like almost like they were trying to present themselves as so noble as to, you know, we didn't even do this, but we're so sorry it happened. Yeah. Yeah. And we're so sorry that this has happened in our community and we want to be representatives of our community and apologize for the crime and for the community, even though we don't know who in the community did it which is ludicrous. And, <laughs> oh, man. and, and um, even though this ain't the first time, we're just now apologizing now because it's impacted us. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was the apology tour side of things. And that never, that could never trump the, the not guilty pleas in court because that is the bottom line. That was yeah. the end goal was a not guilty verdict. Yeah. And so it was, and 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 we just, you know, especially, you know, unfortunately, some, a lot of things, a lot of has changed in 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 the last thirty years, but um, but not enough because too many of our people are are still so close to the bottom and going so without materially that we still naturally are seeking an acceptance. And and an opportunity to join up with and be in community with our oppressors who are among the haves, you know what I mean, uh, and among those who, who who have privileges and basic rights and and, and comforts. And so when you you know, and so it's it, it you know there were kids, man, who, who I think we mentioned this at one point, and for you for you for the audience listening. There were children from the project. So once they heard about what happened with Nara Clark, you know, he survived the comb, he came out of it and gets one winds up, you know, getting moved out of the projects. Yeah. There were kids from the projects who had wished that it had been yep. them yep. so that they could have had the opportunity to move out of there. So yeah, it remember just that shows part. you yeah. you mm-hmm. right, right. So I remember that. Showed, that was heavy. So it just, that was heavy. Yeah. So it just shows you how vulnerable Damn. they are. Right. And so when you at that level, when you when you do when it's that hard for you, it's not as easy for you to see the how nonsensical it is that here you are apologizing for a crime that you say you're innocent of committing. You're not thinking about that part because we just so taken by the presence of these people who we never see, yet they symbolize freedom and they symbolize what it is we want in life. Um, so yeah, it's just a classic case of, of going against your own interests, uh, because you are so unaware and uninformed, um, and, and oppressed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree with your assessment and your breakdown of why they did that. 
Yeah, definitely. And listening to it, it <laughs> man, it was just very, very frustrating part. But it was very good. It was the way you navigated through that, I thought was very well done. And another part for me that probably gave me even more frustration was the situation with Prince Yasiel. And so for the listening audience, we don't need to go into all of that. You can Google the name and look at his history and stuff. But I'm very familiar with him. I'm very familiar with his movement. And I'm very familiar with their politics and their philosophy on race and all of that stuff. So I, for the life of me, could not understand how him being a Hebrew, Hebrew Israelite would take the side that he took. That's that I'm very confused about that, man. Yeah, man. I, I am too, man. And and real disappointed, man, because I know I got I got friends, I got people I've grown up with known forever who have been huge supporters and followers of Prince ACL and his movement. Um I I was have been I, I fell in love multiple times. With with solo vegetarian, his vegetarian restaurant on the south side of Chicago. It's yep. a staple for the black community and especially those of us who are forward thinking and 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 progressively thinking about black liberation. Um, and so yeah, to see him involve himself in that way was just devastating. And even still, and you know, may he rest in peace. He's passed on. Yep. Um, yep. I think that you know it's it's especially hard because he's someone who more than any of the other men who sided with the family of the attackers, he's someone whose work for our community is just so evident. You like, you know, it's just he's he's done so much and you can see it in, in, in people here in the city. To be honest with you, the other brothers who sided with the Caruso's, their, you know, their work ain't as readily available and obviously detectable as ICL. So it was, yeah, to, to see someone who does so much, it was almost like, you know, when I was in the joint, man, you know, we uh, we talk, man, you realize that, you know, dudes, you know, the streets and, and the underworld is a different code. Um, it's a different world. And, and, and so you you can have somebody who was, I, I, I mentioned this before, I mentioned the podcast, uh, somebody, you know, five-star hustlers, you know what I mean? Um, dudes yeah. who, who are just um, uh, uh, city legends and street hood legends who then tarnish their entire reputation by telling on somebody or, mm -hmm. you know, or, 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 or violating the, those, those, those street codes. Um, and, and, you know, to me, man, you know, a lot of people heard this podcast and was like, man, I'm done with ICL fuckers restaurant. I can't believe it. And I I found myself telling them, like, hold on, you know, like, I don't know that I would throw away everything that he did do on account of this. Right. And, and it's it's a hard call. Um, I think that I think that in his mind, he saw an opportunity to um I'm I'm imagining it was a hard call for him. I think he saw an opportunity to create um, more opportunities for more black folks at the expense of one situation um, and one black child. 
Um, I think mathematically it, it might have made it, it must have made sense to him. And, and on paper, if you're just looking at people <laughs> as just yeah. you know human human capital, maybe you know you can make sense of it. But how you could how he could get that close to this family, see what had been done, and and kind of manipulate that vulnerable situation like that is still puzzling and hard and disappointing. Um, yep, 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 definitely. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I, it is tough. And I just want to clarify that I said Prince Yasiel. It's actually Asiel. It's not, it doesn't have a Y. It's with an A. So if people look that up, I just wanted to clarify his name. I kind of said it a little wrong uh, when I uh, first said it. Um, but yeah, man. And, and it, not just that one, but obviously you mentioned some of the other people and the pastors and whatnot. And just as I'm listening to all of these stories and people taking sides, like the thing that came to my mind was the fix is in. Like, that's the first thing I thought of. I'm like, oh, the fix is in on this whole situation. And I was just shocked. Like you said, that that what would get lost is the main victim in the whole story. And that's kind of the sad part is like, are you guys forgetting the actual incident of this situation? Yeah. Once I realized that the fix was in, after I realized that my my story, my reporting wasn't getting any feedback, it's one thing for this newspaper to not get out to, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. But newsrooms, and media organizations know what everybody else is doing. The, a lot of the general public may not have had access to the South Street Journal, the paper I was writing in at the time, but other news outlets did know and did read. Um, and it became obvious when, you know, Italian folks show up at our news <laughs> office looking mm-hmm. for me behind yep. this. It became yeah. obvious. I got a call from the mayor's office Somebody in some office about community outreach or something called me, told me they'd heard that I was somebody with strong ties to the community and maybe I'd want to come work at the mayor's office to do some sort of public relations work. It was so obvious. How did y'all hear that about me? I ain't I ain't I ain't done shit to be on y'all radar, but right. this story. Right. So right. y'all won't answer none of my questions yeah. about what y'all knew and support and relationships. But you're calling me to offer me a job. That was the 30 pieces of silver, right? Yep. So and yep. so when I saw that, when, and when I saw, you know, the, the lack of, of proper feedback about the case, when I saw who'd been bought by this family, and I realized the fix was in, that was probably the final straw that explains your previous question about me being able to fall so heavily into the streets. Yeah. And, and kind of turn my back on what symbolized black excellence. Because at that point, it was like, this game is fixed, and it's at every level. Ain't no winning. Yeah. They are gangsters. We are pawns in a game of chess being played by gangsters on both ends. And so I'm going to fight. I'm going to get on some gangsters. I'm going to do – I'm not going to just be another cog in this shit. You're not – I, I at least – I'm not going to be knowingly be played with and manipulated like this. This is how the, this is how the world works. 
This is how the world really works. We're told the world works. You know, you work hard, you go to school, you learn, you state your peace, you vote, you 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 plead your case, you yeah. make progress. When the world is really operated and run by gangsters yes. on gangster shit in the backdrop and in the underworld and in the scenes of darkness. And so at that point, it was like, I'm all in because um, this this don't work. And, and that, was, that was a huge pivotal point for me personally and and when it comes to this case. Yeah, you're exactly right. And the, the, the gangsters, which I feel comes out in this podcast, where judge robes, minister robes, priest robes, and all of that, that's what comes out as well. For sure. Yeah. Which leads me to <laughs> one of your best moments, man, for me. Your one of your best moments is you sitting down with the Reverend, what is it? Is it B. Herbert Martin? Did I get that right? Yep. B. Because Herbert Martin. You have a few conversations with him, but there's one conversation <laughs> where I, I I don't know, man. Like you, you're respecting him as an elder, so you got that part right. It's like I gotta respect him just as an elder, right, a brother. So I, I'm gonna give him that. But man, come on, man! Like you, you, it just comes out in your mannerisms when you're talking to him. Like, brother, why you, why you doing me like this, man? Like, why you talking to me like this? Why you flim flamming? Why you telling me this? Knowing it's that. But the way you navigate that conversation to not take it to the streets and just have a straight up backyard conversation like, hey, man, I'm going to ask you one more time, brother, or we're going to have to deal with this a different way. Like, like I feel like <laughs> that was coming out in your conversation, <laughs> but you didn't you didn't go all the way there, but I felt it. So what was that like for you having that conversation with a highly, highly respected reverend in Chicago. It was it was a challenge. It was intense. It was emotional. <laughs> I was going through a whole lot in my head and my heart. Because mind you, I I'm knew having it. that I'm, I'm having that conversation in the presence of my white producer as well. Mm. Which is which is also like this, that's another reason why I felt like I got to be real careful about how harshly I approach this guy in front of this white man. I know what you mean. Uh, yep. You know yep. what I mean? Um, yeah, I do. Yeah. At this point in the game, I had a lot more respect for the white producer I was working with than this elder black minister. But there's still just you know, we talk about, that's the interesting thing about, that's why it was hard too, because we talk about, um, you know, as I know, we come up with a tradition of not airing dirty laundry. Yes. And black yeah. folks keeping, you know, our, our shit to ourselves and working that out in private, which goes back to my some of my people not even telling some of my family members I'm locked up. Exactly. You know what I mean? Um, yep, yep. And, and 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 not telling the rest of their networks and their communities, right? And their friends and family members. Um, and so, but the thing is, we live in an age now where we don't have 
town halls for us. Um, we don't we we have fully integrated communicatively between entertainment, news, communication, media, all none of our messages can be relayed to one another um in, in our community without being on display for the world. Right. And so right. Mm-hmm. that's just a fact. And so I had to realize you still got to ask a hard question. But yeah, I still wanted to. It was also um, pivotal for me to remember another gem I picked up from Jamie Calvin was to remember that there aren't necessarily, it's not about good and bad guys, good guys and bad guys. It's about complex characters. And as, as upset and pissed off as I was with Martin and what he did, I had to remember that there is an extent to which he too was a victim. Yes, yes. That comes out. Yep. And, yep. and 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 which is another struggle because the truth be told, you think about you think about insurrections, you think about slave revolts, you think about revolution. Um there will be some people who you love who you will have to take down. Yep. Um and you take them down out of love for the cause and not out of hate for them. It's kind of like praying for your enemies. And and I and I tried to meet him where he was at. He's a man of the cloth. I came up on the Bible. My mother, you know, was a Bible thumper, beat it into me. Um, to the point that I tried to reject it, but that was all I knew. And so when I came into myself as a man, it was still my source of understanding for a spiritual foundation, the spiritual relationship in my own life. And so, you know, I tried to also meet him where he's at, try to speak his language. And, um, and yeah, I, you know, I, 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 I wrestled with myself for nights on end before and after those interviews. Um, because even afterwards, I'm like, did I go too soft on him? Um, should I have gone harder? And and I had to remember that, and, and my team helped me out with that too. That a lot of times, um, people's silence speaks volumes. Um, you can learn so much by what somebody doesn't say or how they refuse to respond uh, to a question. And so I kind of just had to uh, think. He set himself up. You know what I mean? He, you know, you listen to the interview, and. Um, the interview speaks for itself. And so I, you know, fortunately, uh, I guess I learned that I didn't need to come down with the hammer because he kind of shot himself in the foot. Yeah. Just double talking and saying ridiculous shit. And so it was it was hurt. It hurt to watch that. But yeah, it, it, it was it was hard. It was hard to, to maintain that kind of discipline. There were plenty of, yeah, I wanted to, you know, I envisioned myself <laughs> telling man, come on, man, knock it off, man. <laughs> yeah. Who the fuck are you talking to, man? Stop it. Don't, you know what I mean? Don't, don't play my intelligence, man. Yeah. But but that's that's pride and ego that needs to assert that on the personal level. Um, for the sake of journalism and getting the story told and exposing who he is, I was, I was really, you know, at the end of the day, I'm happy that just the line of questioning. Um, allowed him to do that for me. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. And I don't think you went too soft, in my opinion, from listening to it. Because I could, like I said, I could sense your frustration. And at the end of the day, no matter how hard you would have went, he's still going to stick to his story. So it just would have turned into just this back and forth thing. And he just would have been like, well, I got to go now anyway. And thank you for your time and blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the day, you always have the last word because you have the podcast. So you have the microphone. So I think you went just enough. And people will hear, like you said, he put himself out there. There's contradictions. There's problems. There's a fix that's in. And if you have the fix, you might as well go all the way with the fix. Or why did you go with the fix in the first place? So I think it was, I think it was sufficient. And for me as Thank a listener, you. it was sufficient. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that, man. And, and and the fact that I had the last word, like you just said, because it's my podcast, it's something that my producers, Bill and them, Sarah and them, Erisa, they, they had to remind me of as well. You know, it was all new for me. This was, It was a new, this is also just a new style of confrontation, if you will, too, right? Right. It's because it's, it's like, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm working with, a mostly white team about a case about racism where I'm confronting black folks who I'm calling sellouts um, with a team of white folks is some real weird dynamics for yeah. me, a strange place for me that I had to, you know, I, I, I lost a lot of sleep navigating how I would do it. And at the end of the day, I just had to do what I knew felt honest either way it yeah. just had to do with felt honest and where and 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 not care so much about how somebody else may view it one way or another right internally i never felt like i compromised myself mm-hmm. and and it, and it was and it was uh it was it was challenging because you know um because just all those factors in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think you compromise. It doesn't come off like that at all to me. So uh, just one more thing I wanted to touch on. I find it to be one of the most powerful parts of the podcast. Uh, and people just need to listen because there's so many other things you touched on. Uh, the, the sellout conversation is phenomenal conversation. The reconciliation um, aspect of the podcast is another very, very important part of the podcast, but people can get all of that when they listen to it. But I think, and I think most people will agree. One of the most important or, or powerful quotes comes from, uh, the sister, Dr. Marsha, uh, Chatlin, Chatlin. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll let you take over from that conversation and what she said, because you, you repeated it in very slow motion right after she said it. And it's just one of the most powerful pieces of the entire podcast. Yeah. She said, black life is a series of negotiations that force us to evaluate what our life is worth. And I'll never forget that statement because it's just so true at every level. I don't care where you are as a black person in America. That is, that is your everyday equation. Um, how do I handle this, this life? How do I handle this transaction, this experience 
wherever I'm at when, you know, um, with whoever I'm dealing with in, in, uh, in a way that, that best serves me. You know, we, we talk a lot about, man, this last election cycle, man, I had so many debates with so many of the homies who have been taken by this right wing propaganda, disinformation machine that leaves brothers talking about voting, talking about, you know, the lesser two evils is both evil. I'm not voting for evil. When in fact, we make decisions <laughs> based on the lesser of two evils every second of every day as black folks in America. Am I going to buy milk or bread? You know what I mean? Am mm-hmm. I going to, um, uh, am I going to send my kid to this school where he's going to be challenged and, 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 and may not receive the best education? Or am I going to lie and say my kid lives in this district over there so he can get in that school? Am I going to, how, we, we are always making decisions, trying to figure out our next move, weighing, weighing what we have, what we stand to gain versus what we have to sacrifice. Um, because our basic necessities and needs have never been met. And so we're always vacillating between the lesser of two evils. Um, and so, yeah, when she said that it summed up, um, in a real way, uh, the black experience in America and, and that's then, um, you know, and, and it just gave us such, such, such eloquent phrasing to kind of encapsulate how I look at the folks I even deem sell out and even myself. Right. Um, yeah. No, that's, a he- that's so, heavy. That part is heavy. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Talking about yourself in that situation. That's that's a that's a heavy piece in the podcast for sure, man. And your honesty is is uh, something that's you know I value a lot in the podcast when you having that inner turmoil with that conversation. It's a, it's a it's a powerful piece, man. Thank you, man. Yeah, Marsha Chatlin, she, um, and that's, you know, that that's, you know, kudos to, to Bill Healy, man. He's just an amazing fucking investigator, man. I, he's like <laughs> top dog sleuth. Really, though, if it exists, he gonna find it. And so he just came across a clip of Marsha Chatlin as a kid talking about that shit in the aftermath of the beating and tracked her down to find her. And, and, you know, and, and to, to have that interview and to have her words and her thoughts and that she had given it, she had been thinking about it all of these years since, too. Yeah, she just really rounded out the podcast in a real way for me, for us. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that was just, uh, that was fun. That was phenomenal. Yeah, that was, that was really great having her come in uh, to add her part to the podcast. So, you know, as we get out of here, man, can you just, you know, hit us with some of the logistics uh, about the podcast, where folks could check it out, about your team and your, your support group and their organization and the stuff that they're doing. And of course, you know, what you got coming up and where folks could reach you. And even, you know, you could shout out your, your, your website with your shoemaking thing. The brother's a shoemaker as well. The brother's a poet, a playwright, used to be a hip hop MC. Uh, a journalist and all that stuff, man. Super talented brother, man. But yeah, you know, 
talk about all of that stuff before we get out of here, man, because I think folks are really going to want to check out what you're doing and what you got coming up as well. Thank you, man. Um, so in terms of leatherwork, I picked leatherwork up while I was in the joint. Um, I fell in love with, with with making leather goods, mostly like bags and accessories. I came home and um, I found a school where I could uh, where I could uh, I volunteered just to put some time in in order to have access to a space to do work. Eventually, I started teaching classes there, and that's when I first started uh, being introduced to shoemaking. Um, from there, I went and took some uh, some independent classes with other shoemakers to learn how to do that. So I started making shoes, designing shoes. I make bags. Um, I design bags. I'm making leather art. My wife, my website is yjlacour.com. My name is Johannes Joseph Lacour. That's the name of the brand. And so the website is yjlacour.com. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, right now, actually, I'm waiting for some designs of mine to be manufactured in Portugal. And so I'm hoping to have inventory in uh, in the fall, which is when I really kind of go, you know, full on with with uh, marketing and advertising and promoting um, my line of shoes and my leather work. Um, I've been real fortunate there. I was uh, had a uh, was part of a full feature article in the Smithsonian. Um, did some vending events. Edison was invited to do some vending events at the Smithsonian uh, Museum. Uh, spoke at the Denver Art Museum about you know um, sneaker culture. Um, just been been real fortunate to have um, have had my work recognized across the country mm-hmm. um, in terms of journalism. Uh, so I worked with the Invisible Institute uh, as Jamie Calvin and Allison Flowers and the audio team there, which is Erissa Apontaku, who is just who was also like super amazing for me because she was the only other black person on the audio team, mm. and so um, it was it was and it was because you know she and I were able to have conversations and levels of conversation uh, more easily around race and certain. Co- certain particulars um just out of just because we had a shared experience yeah um and just an amazing journalist too and then there's bill healy who i've mentioned a couple times amazing researcher sleuth investigator um sarah geis who was just like top-notch storyteller editor talking about sequencing and scenes and when to you know just in terms of working up telling story craft a story I learned so much. Like these people were my colleagues and my coworkers, as well as like my teachers and mentors. Um, Dana Brozos Keller, uh, amazing uh, researcher, journalist. Uh, she worked with us really closely for, for most of the project, um, and then remotely uh, when she moved uh, to the East Coast to DC. Um, she actually met me at the Smithsonian when I did been out there to DC and kind of trailed me and took pictures. We were going to mm. include some of my work, my creative work in the podcast, kind of where is he now type of thing. It just didn't make it. It was just yeah. too much information to be able to do it. So I appreciate this opportunity to plug my shit too, man. Uh, oh, yeah, and, man, absolutely. Yeah, so the Invisible yeah, Institute get it in. has, Yeah, they, they've <laughs> done. The Invisible Institute has, so yeah, check out my website. Please sign up for the newsletter so that when my inventory lands from Portugal, you know, I can... Um, you know, I can reach out to folks and just definitely trying to get these shoes out in the world. Um, 
And but the Invisible Institute, just amazing organization, amazing people. Um, I've been doing some wrongful conviction unit work uh, where we, you know, there, there's a set of criteria that if a case meets it, we look into it to see that it could possibly have been a wrongful conviction. A lot of it is based on whether Chicago police officers with a long history of torture and abuse were responsible um, for the investigations because they often beat false testimonies and mm-hmm. confessions out of people. And that enough gives a, a enough grounds to at least look into whether this could have been another wrongful conviction under their belt. Right. Um, but it's also become, it's, it's, it's another conversation, but um, uh, yeah, they're doing some amazing work. And we are now in the process of trying to figure out and work on ways to bring journalism like this to the streets, to the people that it's about, that it's most about, and to the people that will most benefit from hearing these stories. Because, you know, the thing is, man, like, it's not a lot of Black folks listening, especially at the street level, listening to audio podcasts. Mm-hmm. Like, again, so, yeah. so what I'm interested in doing now, and um, a couple of my friends and I are working on creating a visual to accompany the podcast so that you can find it on YouTube and people who are used to going to YouTube for content can go there and see some sort of kind of basic visual on screen that makes, you know, listening to the story and digesting the story uh, easier to do and more compelling. Um, and so, and so, and there, there's, I'm, I'm also kind of sorting through the different stories I want to work on and tell. Um, I've had, I've, I've had, uh, you know, after we did the podcast and it, it started making its rounds around the, the, the world of journalism, a brother named Chinjirai out of Philly, I can't pronounce his last name. I don't want to tear Ooh, it up. Uh, Kuminyaka, I think. Uh, yes. I know yes. him. Yeah. I've been yes. trying to reach out to that brother as well. Oh man, I'll try to put y'all in tune, man. Yeah. I'd like to yeah. get together, introductory email. He's, Dude man, he's has- doing some incredible stuff, man. Doing some incredible stuff, oh, man. Dude yeah. has been so kind and generous and reached yep. out to me. I, I think I feel it feels like he's seen me as a guy, you know, coming through an experience that he probably came through when he first got in this world mm-hmm. that's mostly white and you don't hear as many of our voices and he didn't have as much opportunity and know what to do next. And he's kind of trying to help me learn from his experience and he's giving me like just a uh, avalanche of, of wisdom and great advice and things to think about. Wow. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, so for me, um, you know, I'll be 50 in a, in a, in a couple of months, man. And I'm trying to actually, um, go in, figure out, take these next couple few months to figure out exactly where I'm, I'm doing the things I love. I'm doing what I want to do now. Exactly what do I want to do with them? And one of them is continuing telling these stories and getting them to our people. Um, and uh, and the other is is using my creative outlet and my leather work to not only kind of make a living for myself, but to also help tell stories. And, and all the while trying to use both and any other opportunities to join in efforts of activism um, and to teach and train and help younger and other folks, you know, black folks, um, 
is how to join the fight. I want to I want to teach people how to make shoes and leather goods. I want to help teach people how to tell their stories. Yep. You know, because you know I'm very new to this, and so I'm a new voice, and it's a lot of excitement around me, and I appreciate it. But like we talked about in the joint, I mean, you know, and in, in our own communities, there's so many brothers and sisters with stories to tell and experiences and talents that haven't been fortunate enough to find the invisible institutes of the world and haven't been fortunate enough to come up in, in, in households and environments that open these doors for them. And so I'm trying to I'm trying to throw the ladder back, keep the kick doors open and keep them open. And um and, and just and I'm still figuring it out. Um but but I'm 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 uh, I'm real confident and hopeful about about how things are looking going forward. Kind of continuing that tradition of the struggle. Yep. Well, man, I appreciate what you bring into the table, and I'm definitely gonna uh, look forward to anything you got coming out next. The podcast is "You Didn't See Nothing." It's available on all platforms, and for folks that check it out, make sure you rate and review the podcast. That really helps it uh, get more traction and get out there to more listeners. And I hope folks. Uh, dig this podcast as much as I did. Like I said, I had to listen all the way through. Basically couldn't take no breaks in between episodes. So yeah, man, I really appreciate you coming on my show. And uh, we'll talk soon, brother. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, bro. Right on, man. Peace. Yes, sir. A long way from the block. 